I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Damon Young is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Very Smart Brothers, a blog collective that has over 2.5 million unique hits each month. He is a longtime contributing writer to GQ magazine, and he has a brand new book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker, a memoir and essays from the publisher HarperCollins. He is a husband and father. Links to his latest blog are often shared among my colleagues. In fact, he's one of the most distributed and shared writers among our staff. It's because he is smart, funny, honest, and deeply insightful, and yes, challenging. All right, Damon Young, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I need to start off as a writer putting this on the table, that I am totally jealous of you. (laughs) I, I think you're ability to turn a phrase, capture a feeling. I mean, I don't know where you get these metaphors, mm-hmm. but it's like crazy <laughs> how good it is. So just want to start by paying tribute. Well, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm glad that someone appreciates my humor. People in my household right now do not. Well, my wife does sometimes. But my daughter, she's a tough crowd. She's three years yeah. old and trying to make her laugh is is kind of it'll be like difficult. that for the next 15 years I yeah I, that's, that's what i've been told again she she is a tough crowd yeah i have felt some affinity for your writing also as the son of a political cartoonist you know okay. i grew up in a house mm-hmm. where poking fun at power was mm-hmm. sort of what my dad did mm-hmm. and it's been fascinating to watch your journey Part of what I'd love to cover today is how you approach that, what your process is, and and what you think the stakes are. I want to start off by talking about how your writing has been described, which is as a seamless weaving of smart humor and heartfelt empathy. Who said that? <laughs> that I don't from? know if you buy that, but but is is, is it accurate? Do you I, do you aim for that? I aim for writing? that. I aim for yeah. that. That's aspirational. If people read the things that I write and come away thinking that, then that, that's awesome. I am driven by like a self-consciousness. It's this weird vacillation between self-confidence, extreme self-confidence and self-consciousness. When I hear things like that, I am taken aback sometimes that people regard my work that way. But then there will be points where I'll write a thing and I'll read it and I'm like, hmm. That was, that was pretty good. Yeah. There's no in between. I'm at either ends of the spectrum. Self-consciousness, if you're able to wield it correctly, then it could turn into ambition to get better. Kind of consistent with that, you were described in one of the articles that I read about you as shy. And you strike me as introverted in a way. Is that true? Introverted, definitely. I think I wouldn't necessarily call myself shy. Like, I, I don't feel the need to talk just for talking's sake. Right. If I'm talking, if I'm writing, it's because it's the thing that I'm like just really compelled to say. I don't need necessarily to take up all the oxygen in the room. That's just not who I am. So let me just set up really quickly, get my script up. I'm from East Liberty back when it was East Lib and not East Side or whatever it's it's called now. Um, Like back before it was the Portlandia with pierogies that is basically turning into, you know, on my block, the only white people I saw were cops and people actually filming the show Cops. If you remember back then, Cops was in Pittsburgh a lot. Like every fourth episode, they were in Pittsburgh. And so for an entire summer, and I'm 
this is the first time I've admitted this out loud. I think I was 12. I was stalking police officers on my BMX to try to get some screen time on cops. So, so just imagine just the absurdity of a, of a black kid chasing the cops. And that was, that was me. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I'm still alive, which means I didn't actually um, meet any of them. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have told that joke this early. Also, if you're not familiar with my work, some of the shit that I say is pretty absurd, so you're allowed to laugh. If I say something that's a little like, am I allowed to, is that funny? Yes, you're, you're allowed. To, I'm giving you permission today. It ends at 9.30 when I'm done, but right now you are allowed to laugh at some of the things that I say. You found a lot to say, though. I mean, you find mm -hmm. a lot to say for your blog, which is Very Smart Brothers. And you have a new book called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. Uh-huh. Love the title. Oh, thank um, you. In it, you talk about how systemic inequality has led you to experience the hypercognizance of your blackness. Mm -hmm. And can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Being black in Pittsburgh, in a city that is so predominantly historically and even like spiritually white hmm. to have like a, a really robust sense of who you are as a black person has to be intentional here because this isn't a city like a DC or a Philadelphia or other places in the country where you have larger black populations and larger black communities. And so in order to feel that those same ways, you have to be intentional in seeking it out and almost curating it, curating your own, you know, black experience while surrounded by whiteness, by white people everywhere. Mm. It's that hypercognizance. You never forget that you're black because the country doesn't allow you to. And I don't want to, you know, and I think so many of the narratives that exist out there about being black and being black in America are ensconced in this trauma, in this deep trauma where there's this almost this pathology that's attached to the entire black experience. And I hope that my work and my book shows that, yeah, you know, we, we do deal with racism and oppression and structural inequality and all those things, but there is a beauty. There's love, there is passion, there's humor, there's humanity mm -hmm. in that experience. It's a beautiful thought, and I'm curious, you just used the phrase spiritually white. Mm -hmm. I'd just love for you to draw that out a bit, what you mean by that. This entire region, at least in the last you know, 10, 15 years, has been touting itself as this fulcrum for like national change, as a city that is a leader and what 21st century cities should be. And many of those changes, you know, you see like specifically happening in the east side on the east end, particularly East Liberty, where it's almost like a spaceship crashed and just left a whole new neighborhood there. This narrative exists in concert with this idea that Pittsburgh is, is extremely progressive and like this bastion of diversity and, and inclusivity. And you even saw like some of the reactions to the terrorist attack on Tree of Life Synagogue, where some of the local and national reactions that were Pittsburgh-based about that was like, well, Pittsburgh, this isn't Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is stronger than hate. And I don't think we're that special, mm -hmm. at least not in that context. You know, and if you look at the actual statistics, whatever's happening business-wise, whatever's happening economically, those gains are not reaching the black population here. Mm. You know, whatever the national disparities are for income, for wealth, for health, for education, the disparities here are worse. Mm. And so I, I think that Pittsburgh 
kind of has to be honest with itself. I think Pittsburgh is a predominantly white city that wants to stay a predominantly white city. If it doesn't want to be that, that's great. But there's nothing that I've seen or experienced that would lead me to believe otherwise. Hmm. So much to explore there. But one of the ways in which what you're describing for many people was made manifest was in the very different reaction that followed the shooting of Antoine Rose, Mm -hmm. which you've written about. Mm -hmm. Part of what you point out in your writing about this is the role that white privilege played in Antoine Rose's shooting. Mm -hmm. And I think also in the broader community reaction to it. Was it difficult to write about that? It's always hard to write, you know, about those police involved shootings because I have nephews his age. I have a brother-in-law who is 20 years old. You know, I have cousins. You know, I, I look at a kid like that, and I know that that could have very easily been someone close to me. Whenever you read about these things that happen all over the country, I mean, it's 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 heartbreaking. Mm. And it's never easy to write about. You see a thing like that with a kid like that, and the circumstances that led to, you know, what happened to him. And even if you take away whatever emotional, you know, or anecdotal evidence you might think you have just looking at the facts. You just are led to conclude that, yeah, this is a thing that happened because of racism. I'm not saying that the officer who killed him woke up that morning and was itching to kill a black kid. Right, right. But if that's a white kid running from that car, does he give him that split second benefit of the doubt? Mm-hmm. Instead of immediately shooting, of course, we'll, we'll never know the answer to that. But history and, and experience tells us that he probably does. Right. Yeah, I've said the same thing myself, and I think statistics would bear that out, mm-hmm. that we see that that's the case. When you're writing a piece like that, which is obviously deeply personally felt, you know, on your list, you left out the fact that you have a son, too, which I, I'm sure must weigh on your mind yes, as well. Yes, yes. I'm glad you mentioned that because I have a four-month-old son, and I actually forget about him sometimes <laughs> because I'm so used to talking about my wife and my daughter, and he's new, and I have to, like, remember him. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, 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 Levi. You know, when, when you're writing about a case like Antoine Rose's and you're writing about white privilege, who is your audience for that? My primary audience is me. Huh. I write things that I would want to read yeah. if I weren't the person writing them. You know, what, what would I want to see? I am Panama Jackson. All right, I'm Damon Young. And, <laughs> and we, we are, are Very, very smart, smart Brothers. <laughs> very Smart Brothers is a blog slash digital magazine that's like a, is a hybrid um, where we talk about race, pop culture, um, politics, chicken wings, um, barbecue chicken, all types of chicken. Very Smart Brothers started back in 2008. Uh, Damon and I both had individual blogs where we met, we decided to work together, and here we are today. Like anything that is relevant and topical about about black culture, we, we try to have a handle on it and we try to talk about it. And we, um, we're also known for having irreverent and witty and sometimes uh, colorful, I'll say that, colorful content. One of Damon's strong points is his ability to whittle down the truth about something and doing it usually in a very funny and insightful way. And I think he nailed it. Thank you. And I appreciate that, huh? I'm a fan. 
we are writing from a perspective that is firmly rooted in an unapologetic blackness and is also geared towards speaking to a form of the black experience that somebody is having. And it just happens to be, we just happen to have a platform that's able to do that. So I want to talk about you as just a writer for a moment. And you didn't set out to be a writer. So writing has always been a thing I've been interested in. Mm -hmm. I did not start career-wise as a writer. Like uh, my first job was teaching high school English mm -hmm. at Wilkinsburg. And then I was running a program at the Wiki Sport YMCA. After that, I was working at Duquesne University with this uh, Declay program. And throughout that whole time, though, I had a blog and I was writing. And I started Very Smart Brothers in 2008 while I was at Clay. And so while writing hadn't been the thing that I was doing for a living, basketball and writing were like my two like main hobbies. And mm -hmm. I took it seriously enough to maintain a blog. You know, I had a few thousand readers, but I wasn't getting paid. Yeah. You know, it was just a thing that I just really, really enjoyed doing. And even my, my move to start writing full time, it was actually a reaction to being laid off. The, the clay really? program shut yeah. down at, at Duquesne. And I went on a couple other interviews and, you know, got, you know, considered for some other positions that were similar at like Pitt or CMU or whatever, but I didn't get anything. And so I just decided to write full time hmm. and see if I could make a career out of doing this thing that I've been doing as a hobby for, for over a decade. Anybody and, who's ever had a break in their employment, by the way, knows that the instinctive reaction is to panic and mm -hmm. think about how do I get the next thing? How do I, mm -hmm. how do I get the next paycheck? Even though you might have felt it was imposed on you to make that choice is a brave choice. How did you do that? Find the courage to well, decide, well, I'm, yeah, things are going so well, I'm just going to start writing. <laughs> I would be careful with calling it courage. This happened during a recession. And during a recession, you could receive unemployment benefits for longer than usual. Whatever the longest period of time was, that's how long I did. And I also live in Pittsburgh. You know, Pittsburgh still has a relatively low cost of living. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to pay rent and pay a couple bills here and there while working on my blog and getting better as a writer. That ambition was at least partially fueled by desperation. Mm -hmm. And even as, you know, I've had I've had a lot of successes in, in a decade since then, that desperation that I felt back in 2009, 2010, that still exists in me, hmm. where I just don't allow myself to get comfortable. You, you must be asked this all the time by folks who are aspiring writers and artists mm -hmm. about what advice you'd give them about making that plunge into being full-time mm -hmm. on their passion. Do you give it? I do. Yeah. And what's your, what, what do you tell them? Have a benefactor. That's <laughs> <laughs> <I tell> them. <laughs> it could be yeah. your city. It could be a person you're, you're in a relationship with. Yeah. And you have like the standard stuff like, you know, make time to do it every day and be consistent. But you need money mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. You can't write when the lights are off. What I think is so interesting about your writing is that your writing seems to have a fairly powerful, no, not fairly, it has a powerful crossover effect. So it reaches white people, it makes them, us, I should say, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It tweaks some common wisdom. You know, it makes folks who are willing to take a look, take a look. Is that part of the value of your? It's a value that has come. I don't intend for that to happen. That it happens is good, I guess, although sometimes I wonder if 
the white people who feel that way about my work believe that reading it is like absolving them of mm. any sort of racism or, or white guilt or whatever. Mm. So you can't help but wonder how authentic that affinity is. Mm. And I know that there are people who just like the way I write and, you know, it, it entertains them, it makes them laugh. And I, I definitely appreciate that. But if you're a black person and you intend to write things for a white audience, you will get lost. Mm. I am just trying to tell the truth. Mm. Well, in the vein of being an equal opportunity critic, mm-hmm. another audience you make uncomfortable is men. You've been <laughs> more than willing, I think, mm-hmm. to tackle men, white and black. And I took note as we were preparing for this that you had a a recent post titled, I have a son now, which means I can finally start respecting men as people. (laughs) And by the way, your answer was kind of (laughs) no. So so can you talk about that realization? And in that case, are you speaking to men? And are you, what do you want us to know? That was satire. It was a take on all the pieces that men write. Like I have a daughter now which means that I could finally respect women. And so I wrote a take on that, like, oh, I have a son, which means I could finally see men as human beings. That is definitely a genre, by the way. I can't tell you how many times I've sort of rolled my eyes at hearing members of Congress say as the father of a daughter, uh-huh. like they wouldn't care if mm-hmm. they weren't. When I write these sorts of pieces where men are the focus and patriarchy and, and male privilege and, and you know masculinity, I do intend for men to read them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if my words are powerful or impactful enough to change people's minds immediately, but just to get people to think mm-hmm. about their behavior and to just start to interrogate themselves. Why do I feel this way about women? How is it impacting my relationships? Am I actively causing harm to people? What does it mean to be a feminist? What does it mean to be an ally? Once you start asking those questions, then maybe you start acting differently. When you started thinking about, gee, I want to tell the truth about these very weighty issues and, mm-hmm. and for whatever audience, tackle them, validate some people's experience, challenge other people's perceptions, how did you get the idea that satire and sarcasm and humor were the way to do it? I've just always been into comedy, I'm creating it, reading it, watching it. You know, the thing that makes comedians so great at what they do is that they're keen observers of just the human condition and find truths that would seem to be just very, like, matter-of-fact, but you don't recognize their matter-of-factness until they articulate it. And you're like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Going back to, like, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, the best comedy thing that I've seen probably in the last five years was yeah hannah gatsby's special on netflix and that you know just being able to pinpoint these truths and force the audience to reckon with them and this tension it's yours i am not helping you anymore you need to learn what this feels like because this this tension is what not normals carry inside of them all of the time because it is dangerous to be different to the men To the men in the room, I speak to you now, particularly the white men, especially the straight white men. Pull your fucking socks up. How humiliating. Fashion advice from a lesbian. That is your last joke. 
at the end of that special, she says something very similar to what you said a moment ago about white people laughing at your material and then absolving themselves of racism. And mm-hmm. she, she said something similar about men sitting uncomfortably during her set and thinking that if they laughed at her jokes that that made them okay as mm-hmm. men. Did you as a man feel uncomfortable watching that? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I felt uncomfortable like as a, as a human. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that notion of absolving. I'm asked pretty frequently by white people. It's only white people who ask me this when I'm giving talks about the notion of hope, mm. whether or not I have hope, whether you know they should have hope. What I've usually said is that no, that my hope goes as far as I can see. Mm. I have hope that the people I interact with, the people that read my work, the people maybe that are here, can be better or get better or or whatever but once i can't see you or hear you anymore my hope begins to dissipate and i'm going to stop answering that question that way and instead i'm going to ask why are you asking me that question Hmm. do you want me to have hope or do you want me to give you permission to have it oh interesting because that notion of watching a a person like me or a person like her or any other marginalized person speak and talk, perform, and feeling like, you know, because I saw them, then I've done the work. Mm-hmm. And that's just not enough. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty dark segue from, um, <laughs> from asking yeah. about comedy. Well, so much pain under, as, as we know, so <laughs> and, much and, pain and, underlies and comedy, comedy. And that's yeah. where the comedy comes from. And right. one thing I, I also appreciate about comedy is that the best comedy evolves. I name-dropped Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock, Pryor, Carlin. There was things that they said in their bits that would not work today. Mm -hmm. Those jokes were funny maybe in 1985. Or they were funny because it was still socially acceptable to make fun of certain people or maybe to use certain language or making fun of certain people. Now it's not. And the thing I appreciate just as a writer with making jokes and with comedy is that it forces you to evolve too. Do you ever look back at older material? Oh, yeah, I look back and I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe I wrote that. (laughs) All the time. I I look back at things I wrote two years ago and I cringe a little bit. And I think that's good. You play with the idea, by the way, of, I think, of what's no longer acceptable. And in your new book, you have a chapter called No Homos. Yeah. You're playing with that idea of mm-hmm. anti-gay sentiment mm-hmm. and how to contend with it as a man. Yeah. Is that, can you say a little bit more about that? It goes back to when I was in high school and college. Mm-hmm. No homo was a phrase that almost served as like this punctuation where if you said anything that had any sort of possible gay undertones, then you followed it with no homo. I guess the best analogy I could think of is on Seinfeld when they had not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. We're not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, of course not. I mean, it's fine if that's who you are. Absolutely. I mean, I have many gay friends. My father's gay. Look, I, I, I know what I heard. I heard. It was a joke. All right, look, you want to have sex right now? Do you want to have sex with me right now? There's not, like, any overt hate behind it, but you still are saying this like deeply homophobic thing. Mm. And the entire chapter is just about the notion of performance and how, you know, if you are straight black male and and I was a star basketball player in high school and college, there's a certain expectation of how and who you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And the homophobia is part of that performance. 
And again, it doesn't absolve myself because I talk about how I used to do it. And, you know, I'm not absolving myself now. I make sure, you know, and particularly in the book, that I, now obviously it's a memoir, so I am the protagonist because Mm -hmm. it's a book about myself, but I also have to be the antagonist too. Like, this isn't Black Panther. This I'm not writing a superhero origin story. I'm right. writing a, a book about a human person right. who has very human things happening to him. And I feel like it would be incomplete and it wouldn't be as compelling if I didn't admit to some deeply unflattering things about myself, right. too. If it was just all, this one great thing I did, and this is this other great thing I right. did, and this is why you need to be like me so you could also do great things. I wouldn't want to read that book. I mean, that would be a book that, you know, I might as well change my last name to Trump. I was going to say that book has already (laughs) been written. It's called The Art of the Deal. So So you put yourself in the picture often and hold yourself, I think, as accountable as anybody else. Mm -hmm. But you do also reveal yourself in ways that I think are highly sympathetic and deservedly so. You, You have a gift, I think, for being able to help people see how black people and white people in our society in particular experience the same things very differently. Mm -hmm. To go back to your comment earlier about swimming in the whiteness of this community, Mm -hmm. for those of us who are white, we don't see it. It's that old goldfish analogy of we're swimming in the water, we don't see the water. But you write as one example about the experience of buying a home Mm -hmm. and how different that was for you and how it was impossible not to forget the role of race and color in that. Mm -hmm. Can you share that story? Yeah. My wife and I bought a house last year. The piece I wrote about it, I wrote this piece maybe a month after the the sale went through. We were pre-approved. I had all of my T's crossed, my I's dotted. I had a very large down payment that I was willing to let go of. Everything is, you know, ready to go. And we find out like a week before closing, that the lender denied us the loan. Even though the loan was pre-approved? Even though the loan was pre-approved, wow. which is a thing that apparently very, very rarely happens. Mm-hmm. And it's even rare for someone who actually has money and proof of income and, and all of that. And so part of the hypercognizance of existing while black is a neurosis that comes when you're wondering whether things happen because you're black. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these things can be good things, like if I go to a park to play ball and guys have never seen me play before, but I'm like a 6'1", 6'2", black guy, then I'll probably get picked. Now, Seems like I'm, a small compensation. Yeah, for but, you know, it, it does happen. <laughs> yeah. But then there's things that happen where maybe you're followed by a cop. Maybe you go into a department store and the clerk is paying a little bit too close attention to you. And where the neurosis really thrives and exists and populates is when you're like 99% certain that this is happening because you're black, Mm -hmm. but you're not sure. That tiny bit of space between the certainty, which comes from just all the years of history and experience, Mm -hmm. and then the idea that you don't have concrete proof that this particular instance is definitely 100% determined by race. When I was talking to the mortgage guy who was explaining to me, he's like, yeah, this this really, this just never happens. I don't, I don't really know what to say. I'm thinking to myself, I, I know what to say. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, I, know, yeah. I know what to say. But again, there's no way of me proving it. And so fortunately, the mortgage guy, he found another company who had another lender 
with another bank, and then I did get approved, and we ended up buying the house. With all the same qualifications. With all the same qualifications, yeah. and it went it went like that. Yeah. Another example, I write in my book about um, this basketball game that I play with a group of guys, a group of predominantly white guys. This game is like my source of self-care. It's like my source of catharsis. It's how I feel better. This chapter takes place the week of the election in 2016. Mm. One of the guys who's a regular there, I know that he is a conservative and a Trump supporter. Before the games were started that day, the Trump voter guy and this other guy who's like a really staunch progressive gave each other like this hug before the game. And it was almost like, ah, well, you're, you're sad one. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a fair game. Your guys won. We're we'll, good. We'll the, We're we'll, good. Yeah, we'll get the next one. <laughs> right, right. We'll see you in four years. We'll get the next one. I'm treating this experience like we got hit by a fucking tsunami. Mm-hmm. And they're treating it like it was just another pickup game. Mm. That, more than anything I can remember, really just articulated the difference in how we regard things like that where for them it was just another Thursday night, just another game, just another election. And for me and for you know millions of people like me, this was traumatic. Mm-hmm. You have managed not to, be, not to be absorbed into writing about politics all the time and having it be the only thing that dominates the narrative, but is it different to be writing in the era that we're living in now because of who's in the White House? It's a, it, that's a difficult question to answer, you know, because just what's happening, you know, politically in a country gives you so much material. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to drown in it because there are things you can write about every day. You can allow yourself to drown in that. And that sense of drowning can make you lose perspective. I don't want to just write about that. I don't just want to think about that because there's so much more that I'm interested in, so much more I'm experiencing, so much more that's happening around me and to people who look like me. And there's so much more that I want to say. Mm -hmm. And also, too, yes, Trump is uniquely ill-equipped to be president and uniquely racist, uniquely sexist. I mean, he's, he's a unique guy. But from a policy perspective, what he is doing isn't that much different than what Reagan did, what the Bushes did. This isn't the first time that we've had to deal with, you know, a Republican-led country. Mm-hmm. You know, to keep that in perspective matters. Mm-hmm. So let me conclude then with just one last question, which is the one we always ask. The name of the program is We Can Be, and I'm always curious about what guests on this program think we can be that we're not today. How would you end that sentence, We Can Be What? We can be empathetic. We can be curious, and we can allow that empathy to develop that curiosity. Great. Damon Young, thanks so much for being here with us, and I've enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Like all great writers, Damon's writing has the power to not only entertain and confront, but also stir us to think and to act in ways that are more empathetic, loving, and humane. I heard a comment recently from a social activist in our community that, quote, we need fewer allies and more accomplices. Damon challenges his readers not just to laugh, not just to ponder deep and sympathetic thoughts, not just to signal their virtue, but also to get in the game, 
to be champions, to be fellow travelers on the road to a greater and truly universal justice.